I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 13 through 18. This is a familiar passage, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, the passage in which Jesus told the disciples that he was going to build his church. And I want to spend a few moments with you this morning talking about the significance of the church. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. This is what the Bible says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In this very familiar passage, Jesus says to his disciples that he will build his church. That he will build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are three particular points that I want to make about this famous passage this morning. First of all, number one, I want you to notice, Jesus calls the church his church. Jesus said, I will build the church. He says, it's my church. Jesus established it. Jesus built it. Jesus loves the church and wants the church to grow. He wants the church to prosper. He wants the church to thrive. Paul even calls the church the bride of Christ. Now, now what does it mean that the church is the bride of Christ? Well, simply stated, you can't love Jesus without loving his bride. You can't love Jesus without loving the church. And I bring this up because, I, you know, in, 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 in modern culture, the church gets a bad name. Um, Jesus pulls a lot better than the church. Uh, a lot of folks will say, you know, I love Jesus, but I, I'm, I'm, I don't like the church. I'm, I, I'm a spiritual person. I, I, I like Jesus. I like to read about Jesus. I love what Jesus does, what he stands for. But I don't like the institution of the church. But what I want to point out to all of us is that the scriptures never uh, com uh, contemplated that you would love Jesus and not love the church. Jesus said, the church is, is my church. I built the church and the church um, will grow and prevail and, and will prosper and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The bride and groom 
In other words, go together as one. What does it mean that Jesus says that he loves the church and that the, uh, the Bible says that the church is the bride of Christ? Well, the bride and the groom go together. I remember when I was in my early 20s, the first time that I recognized that when one of my buddies got married, it, it, it wasn't just him now, it was him and his bride. My best friend, Court Diffie, was the first of all of my friends who got married. And, and I'll, I'll never forget when he and Mel got married on their wedding day, Melanie told Court, um, she said, I don't want you to go water skiing today with Rick. And so Court said, okay, I promise I'm not gonna go water skiing. So on that day, he and I went jet skiing all day. (laughs) And uh, we were a little bit late for the pictures and we were pretty sunburned. And Melanie said, you went water skiing with Rick, didn't you? And he said, no, I didn't. I I went jet skiing with Rick. I promised I wouldn't go water skiing. And I remember when I, when I, as I watched Court get in trouble with Melanie, it occurred to me in that moment, it's no longer Court. It's now Court and Mel. When, when your close friend gets married, it's, it's no longer just that person, it's that person and his bride or her groom. What I'm trying to say to us is that the same is true for the church. It is intertwined in a sense with Christ, interdependent upon Jesus, not that Jesus is dependent upon the church, but that the church does not exist without Jesus. The way the church reaches, the way that Jesus reaches the world is through the church. The way Jesus disciples believers is through the church. The way Jesus shows his love and compassion is through the church. The church is, in a sense, the hands and feet of Jesus. And through the church, the priorities of Christ are lived out and materialized in the lives of believers. The spirit of Christ working through the church carries out the commands of Christ. And the lost are saved. Missionaries are sent out into the nations. The dispossessed find new community, the hungry find food, the thirsty find life-giving water, and through Christ, broken homes are mended, broken lives are restored, orphans find forever families, and the community is redeemed. That is the work of the church, and it is the work of Christ in people's lives, and that is the vision that Christ has for the church, and it has happened, and is happening every day all around the world, I was so encouraged by the, just the announcements today of everything that is going on in this local body, in this community, and how this church is reaching out into this community and communities all around Chicagoland, and lives are being changed, and communities are being redeemed. And that is happening all around the country, and it's happening all around the world I want you just to think for a moment how the church has exploded in growth from those early days when those disciples began to share the gospel uh, in the highways and byways outside of Jerusalem. There are now close to 2.6 billion people in the world who call themselves Christians. 
Christianity is growing rapidly in the non-Western world. In fact, according to Lifeway Research, I just want to read this quote. In 1900, twice as many Christians lived in Europe than in the rest of the world combined. Today, more Christians live in Africa than any other continent. By 2050, Africa will be home to almost 1.3 billion Christians, while Latin America, 686 million, and Asia, 560 million, will both have more than Europe, 497 million, and North America, 276 million. Now, how is it that Christianity is growing so rapidly throughout the world? The answer to that question is through churches. And the greatest need in the global church is education and discipleship of pastors. Because according to Cambridge Center of World Christianity, over 80% of pastors have not received theological training and have very little mentoring or coaching. I I want you to look at what Operation World, one of the leading research institutions on global Christianity, has recently written. This was in one of their prayer newsletters they sent out recently. One of the greatest needs is training for present and future leaders. The majority of Global South congregations are led by pastors with little or no formal theological training. Many of those who do have a degree get it from substandard, unaccredited institutions. Lay leaders get less, even less by way of equipping. Pray for means by which biblically sound and culturally appropriate training can occur. From introductory level modular training to doctoral level education. Now, I I give you that quote because I just want to remind all of us that Bethel's support and giving to global action is making a real impact where it is needed the most in global Christianity. And we do this. Your church, my church, churches all around the country, because we love the church, because we love the gospel, and we believe the church is God's plan to reach the world with the gospel and to disciple and care for believers and to transform communities. And so, Jesus said, I will build my church. But then secondly, I also want to point out that this passage teaches that the gates of hell are coming against the church. The Bible teaches that there is an opposing force in the world that is working against the people of God. Do you kind of feel that in our current culture? It seems kind of obvious, doesn't it? And Jesus makes a clear reference of this opposing force of the gates of hell coming against the church. Not long ago, an article appeared in Time Magazine entitled Regular, I want you to just listen to this title. Regular Christians are no longer welcome in American culture. And I'm going to quote from the article because it it illustrates this point. A new vigorous secularism has catapulted mockery of Christianity and other forms of religious tradition into the mainstream and set a new law for what counts as civil criticism of people's most cherished beliefs. 
In some precincts, the faith of our fathers is controversial as never before. Some of the faithful have paid unexpected prices uh, for their beliefs lately. The teacher in New Jersey suspended for giving a student a Bible. The football coach in Washington placed on leave for saying a prayer on the field at the end of the game. The fire chief in Atlanta fired for self-publishing a book defending Christian moral teaching. The Marine court-martialed court for, for pasting a Bible verse above her desk. And other examples of new intolerance. Anti-Christian activists hurl smears like bigot and hater at, at Americans who hold traditional beliefs about marriage and accuse anti-abortion Christians of wagging a supposed war on women. Some Christian institutions face pressure to conform to secularist ide ideology or else. Flagship evangelical schools like Gordon College in Massachusetts and King's College in New York have had their accreditation questioned. Some secularists argue that Christian schools don't deserve accreditation, period. Activists have targeted homeschooling for being a Christian thing. Atheist Richard Dawkins and others have even called uh, it tantamount to child abuse. Student groups like InterVarsity have been kicked off campuses. Christian charities, including adoption agencies, Catholic hospitals, and crisis pregnancy centers have become objects of attack. So there is no question that in our modern culture, a postmodern culture, a post-Christian culture, that there is a, a kind of darkness that the church is having to push back. But I would remind all of us that the church has always been on this footing, that we have always been about shining the light in the darkness and reaching out to our communities with compassion, with the gospel, with the love of Jesus. John 1, 4 through 5 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Ephesians 6, 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Jesus said that the gates of hell will always be in opposition to the church, that, that there is a prevailing opposition at work in the world, and it is against the church. The forces of darkness are fully antagonistic to the church. The Bible says in Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower, and the righteous will run into it and are safe. So to take the broader meaning of this passage, the church, the place where the name of the Lord is lifted up, where the values of the Lord are taught and practiced, is a strong and fortified tower against the forces of darkness in our world. It is in this sense that the church is a refuge where biblical values are taught and treasured, as well as being a light in the darkness. But the gates of hell are also coming against the family. And on this Father's Day, I want to remind, uh, remind us that it is especially coming against biblical fatherhood. I believe that biblical manhood is under assault today. I believe that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle in our culture, and in the front lines of that cultural battle are the arena of gender ideology, and specifically what I believe is the alarming decline 
of a compelling manhood vision. We live in a relativistic age in what Carl Truman in his landmark book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, calls the age of expressive individualism, in which identity is found less from transcendent biblical values or absolute truth, and more from subjective feelings and sexual impulses. The result is a confusion and a despair and a lack of strong identity outside of self, especially masculine identity. Now, I bring this up because when we dig into most of the deep-seated problems that are impacting our culture, many of them can be boiled down to one thing, confused and frustrated men. Men not acting like men. Men who have no vision for biblical manhood. Men who have lost their way. A growing number of young men are facing psychological and emotional crisis that has resulted in a number of alarming statistics. For instance, young men account for 75% of all suicides. Young men are three times more likely to experience addiction and account for 81% of of drug overdose deaths. For the first time in history, over 50% of marriage-age men are not married. 40% of births in the U.S. are to unmarried moms, up from 20% in 1990. 65% of young adult men admit to viewing pornography daily. Over 50% of marriages end in divorce in the United States. 81% of all violent crimes are committed by young men. So on this Father's Day, I want to make a point that should ring true for every single one of us. Manhood identity matters. And masculinity makes a difference. Biblical manhood makes an enormous difference in children's lives, in families, the church, and society. Conversely, when men lose their way and have no vision for biblical manhood, society suffers. I believe we need a strong revival and even a reformation of the glorious and beautiful vision of biblical manhood. Now, I frame this as a spiritual issue for one reason. Jesus framed it that way. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus taught a salient lesson about the tactics of the enemy and how to destroy the home. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off the possessions, his possessions, unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. This passage was in a teaching about spiritual warfare. Jesus teaches that the way to destroy the home is to tie up the strong man. What I am saying to all of us is that in homes and communities all around the country, men are being bound up. The issue is spiritual in nature, 
and it is having a tremendous societal impact. The very idea of manhood is going through uh, an enormous sea change in our cultural consciousness. Men are bound up in a focus on self and the popular idea that pleasing self is the highest good. They are bound up in all kinds of addictions that keeps them from realizing their full potential as productive men and husbands and fathers. And boys are not catching the biblical manhood vision, and so the problem is being perpetuated into future generations. You see, the enemy has a very powerful tool, a very powerful weapon in this battle. He doesn't have to destroy the church. He doesn't have to burn down cities. He doesn't have to start riots or influence elections. The the enemy doesn't have to make a big splash if he wants to ultimately destroy the church and society. All he has to do, very subversively and effectively, is to bind up the strong man within the home. And if he can tie up fathers and destroy the vision of biblical manhood, destruction of families will follow. Destroyed families lead to the destruction of communities, churches, and ultimately, all of society. And this strategy is devastatingly effective. I want you to consider these alarming statistics from the National Fatherhood Institute. Fatherless homes account for 63% of teen suicides. 90% of teen runaways, 71% of high school dropouts, 75% of teenagers in drug treatment, and 85% of prison inmates. Over the past several months, I've had many conversations with school teachers in our community who are quitting their jobs out of frustration, and what I am hearing is that American school children are out of control. They don't know how to respect. They don't know how to follow rules. They don't know how to sit and learn. The control of the schoolroom in modern America is becoming increasingly impossible. The frustrations of our school teachers are like the canary in a coal mine. They are warning us that our society is coming apart at the seams. The seams that were once held together by the American family unit, they are seams that are becoming increasingly frayed and dysfunctional. Listen to these words from the uh, University of Texas Child and Family Research Center. Involved fatherhood is linked to better outcomes on nearly every measure of child well-being, from cognitive development and educational achievement to self-esteem and pro-social behavior. Children who grow up with involved fathers are 39% more likely to earn mostly A's in school, 45% less likely to repeat a grade, 60% less likely to be suspended or expelled from school, twice as likely to go to college and find stable employment after high school, 75% less likely to have a teen birth. What's the answer? The answer is a reawakening of the church as a place where family values are taught and held up. 
The answer is a reformation of the family that begins with biblical manhood. The answer is a renewed and fresh vision of what it means to be a godly man. The problem is a spiritual one, and therefore the answer is spiritual in nature as well. What does biblical manhood look like? You know, Robert Lewis has spent many years writing about the meaning of biblical manhood, and he offers four key characteristics found in Scripture that define that vision. A godly man leads courageously. A godly man rejects passivity. A godly man accepts responsibility. A godly man seeks God's reward. I believe that a time is coming, and maybe even sooner than we think, that a kind of spiritual renewal, a kind of spiritual reformation is gonna take place in our country. A reformation of biblical manhood on a grand vision for fatherhood, and it needs to happen. It must happen. If it doesn't happen, we are in for darker days. In the final prophecy of the Old Testament, the very last passage in the Old Testament, The prophet Malachi gives a prophecy about the coming of a Messiah and a new spiritual age. His words ring true in modern times. This is what Malachi wrote in Malachi 4.16. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now before I move on, I wanna, I wanna talk to those of you in the room who are single moms or who are single dads and maybe you feel a certain despair in these words. I want to tell you that over the many years that I have been a pastor, I have seen countless examples of young men and young women who have been raised by single moms, single parents within the church, who have gone on to live incredibly productive and godly lives. Let that be an encouragement to you. The Bible says in Proverbs 68, 5, A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a scorched land. What am I saying? The enemy is coming against the church. And yet the church is the answer. Which leads me to point number three. And that is that the church will prevail, will prevail against the gates of hell. The church will prevail against the gates of hell. I am not worried about the church. We hear about scandals and predictions that the church is done for. I'm not worried. We hear about the predominance of secularism in our world and the rise of atheism in our country and in our culture and that The church is passe, I'm not worried. I'm not worried about the church. Why? Because Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. 
I want you to think as we close this morning, I want you to think about where Jesus said these words to the disciples. He was in Caesarea Philippi. Where is Caesarea Philippi? It's up the very tip of the nation of Israel, right uh, at the bottom of Mount Hermon. It has a long history. Caesarea Philippi was a place of pagan worship. Hundreds of years before the Romans came to that area, the Canaanites worshiped pagan gods there at the base of Mount Hermon. And then the Greeks came and they, again, adopted pagan worship. They, they named the city Panias because it was the seat of the worship of the god Pan. There was a huge temple that had been erected there at Caesarea Philippi by the Romans, a beautiful white marble temple. And in the cliff face there, at the base of Mount Hermon, there was a cave, and in that cave was flowing water that came out of the crevices of that limestone mountain. The waters from Mount Hermon flowed into that cave and out into the Jordan River. And the ancient pagans believed that water was a symbol of the spirits. And water coming out of that cave symbolized the underground spirits coming out into the earth. And so they built a temple there and they erected all kinds of other temples and they participated in vile, disgusting worship there in that place. I'm talking about prostitution, I'm talking about child sacrifice and all kinds of vile sexual acts. Right there in that spot. Why did they do it there? Because they believed that that was the gate to the underworld. They believed that that was the gate, well, we would say to hell. And Jesus took his disciples from the comfort zone of the Galilean region, the predominantly Jewish area, and he walked with them for 30 miles, three days journey to Caesarea Philippi, the seat of Roman power and pagan worship, and he stood right there in front of that awful place where all of that pagan worship took place in front of that uh, marvelous white marble temple. And it was in that very spot that Jesus turned to the disciples and said, who do people say that I am? The disciples said, well, they think you're the prophet, they think you're Jeremiah, they think you're Elijah. And then Jesus said, who do you say I am? And that's when the Apostle Peter gave his confession. I, I believe you're the Son of God, the, the Messiah. And Jesus then said, it is that pronouncement that I am the Messiah. The gospel, that pronouncement, that word, that's where I'm going to build my church. That truth. And I tell you, He's talking to these 12 disciples standing there, probably wondering why they're there. Looking at that temple, looking at all that, those worshipers, probably even feeling overwhelmed, out of their comfort zone, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it.
don't you just wonder what the disciples thought when he said that? Us? Really? Look at history. Within 300 years, Christianity had taken over the Roman Empire. Just a few generations later, because of the growth of the church, all of Rome was Christian. And incidentally, not long after the Edict of Milan, when Constantine declared Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire, just a few years later, that very temple was destroyed in an earthquake. I'm not worried about the church. Because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Before I pray, I just want to make one quick observation. The question, the question that Jesus asked is a question for all of us. It's the most important question you will ever ask in your entire life because it will determine your eternal destiny. Jesus said to the disciples, who do you say I am? Have you answered that question yet? 